Good morning, everyone. It's a good Sunday if you can get a Rocky Four video in. It's a good Sunday. We are in the third and final week of our series called The Underdog. And I let my closest friends know, and you are my closest friends, so I'll let you know that uh, I was an Eagle Scout uh, growing up. I was in the Boy Scouts. And in the Boy Scouts, we had a motto. It was a simple motto. It was just simply this, be prepared. In short, it is the discipline of trying to think up as many different scenarios that are possible or probable and then being prepared for it. Like we had meetings where we would get together, we would run first aid drills, like we would throw out a particular first aid scenario and then we had to figure out exactly how it is to respond. And so if anyone, because of the air conditioning this morning, gets hypothermia, you need to know I know exactly what to do in order to remedy the situation. We would have safety drills, meaning we were required to go home and figure out an exit strategy should our house ever catch on fire. And in the strategy had to be alternative routes, meaning that that room is on fire, so I can't go this direction. I need to go the other direction. And I remember as a kid having my entire family practice exiting the house in a fire drill, to which now I think about my kids and they'd be in the room on their phone, Dad, they're texting me, Dad, I think the house is on fire, right? It's like, you know, fire emoji with a guy running, like, yeah, get out of the house. Tornado drills, camping, when we went camping once a month, we would painstakingly attempt to figure out our packing list of the what-ifs and what are the possible scenarios. We'd put together rope and gear and equipment, cooking supplies, tools, all those sorts of things, because the last thing that you wanted was to be stuck or in danger just because you weren't prepared. Being prepared was all about making sure you had on your person or easily accessible to you what you needed at any given moment. No one wants to be stuck. Which is why um, about once a year we would do what's called a wilderness survival camp and it was different than all the other uh, campouts that we would have in the year and that on the wilderness survival campout you could only take a couple of things with you. It was wilderness survival. And this is a whole new ball game. Instead of just taking 20 minutes to pitch the nicely lined tent you packed for the trip, now you're going to spend the better part of a day figuring out how to put together a lean-to shelter, going and collecting as many branches and broad leaves and finding vine to tie it together with as rope. Instead of 15 minutes to gather the wood that you packed along with a flame accelerant and a match, perhaps a blowtorch if your scoutmaster allowed it, you're now going to spend hours trying to come up with dry kindling and an apparatus to produce enough heat that it would create a spark to some tinder. Instead of now just lighting the Coleman stove and ripping open the package of ribeye steaks that you packed in the cooler, you're now going to spend hours trying to recall from the textbook what are exactly edible wild plants and walk around in the woods trying to find it, hoping that you don't kill yourself in the end with a poisonous mushroom. Instead of just going into one of the state park's bathrooms to take care of your business, you are now hiking off into the woods with a shovel to make a latrine and hope that you can find some leaves that are not poison ivy, oak, or sumac. In fact, how many of you here like camping? Like, you're like, oh, I love camping. Like, oh, quite a few of you like camping. Okay, but let me ask this. Like, how many of you are like, we like roughing it camping, like talking on the ground, tent. How many of you are like, no, a big fancy RV in a campsite is more like what I'm, yeah. Yeah, I, I understand that. Like, so you're not into the wilderness survival. You're more like if the, Hilton, if, the, if the Hilton Hotel can be transported to the woods, that's where I would like to stay for the weekend. But in the end, we want to be prepared. We want to have access to all the things that we think we might need by way of necessity and sometimes even luxury and comfort. 
And this is true in just about every other area of our life as well. There's probably, if you're an employee at work, nothing could be more frustrating than to feel like you are failing at the task assigned to you, not because you're not capable of doing it, but only because you've not been given the proper resources or tools or equipment to get the job done. Or you don't mind coaching your kid's baseball team, but at the very least, what you want is to be ensured that you are going to have, by way of communication and instruction and encouragement and equipment, exactly what you need to get the job done. As you enter into the relational aspects of life, you enter into premarital counseling. You could read books on relationships. You might attend a parenting class, read what to expect when you are expecting, listen to podcasts, attend those conferences, sign up for that class because in an effort, you want to be prepared for whatever life might throw at you. You'll take marriage. You're not opposed to that. You just want to have the tools and resources necessary to have a good marriage. You want to be prepared. You don't mind parenting. You'll take parenting. You just want to have the tools and resources necessary to not screw them up as bad as you know you are already going to screw them up. That's what you want. You want to be prepared for it. And this is why I don't even attempt to fix anything in my house or my car, like at all. In fact, uh, my oldest son, Isaac, several months ago, I think was starting to panic about his own knowledge about cars and how to fix them. And so he said to me one day, he said, Dad, I want you to just tell me everything you know about cars. Just explain what you know. I'm thinking, <laughs> all right, well, five minutes later, that's where you put the gas in here. And, and I can check the oil. But other than that, in fact, um, my father-in-law, who I often assume leaves my house thinking my daughter has married a complete idiot, um, the only reason why I have tools is because getting married, he bought me tools, knowing like maybe this will spark something in my pathetic son-in-law. Listen, I don't mind the charge or challenge to do something. I'm in for a good adventure. I don't even mind taking risks. I just want to make sure that I'm prepared and equipped for them. I want to make sure that what is in my hand is sufficient for the job. You don't want to show up with a flathead screwdriver only to discover that the project requires some specialized tool manufactured in Sweden. Place in my hand what I need. And the same is true for our spiritual lives. I don't mind stepping out in faith to accomplish a particular task that I think God might be calling me to, that I'm convinced will expand the kingdom of God. You, you want me, God, to lead the youth group? No problem. But what are you going to give me by way of support to pull that off? Or you want me to give up a Saturday morning to go out into the community and serve? I've got no problem with that. I just want to make sure that you give me what I need, that in the end it will not be just a big waste of my time. You want me to actually talk to a handful of my coworkers about how you worked in my life when I was going through the exact same thing that they're going through? No problem, God. I just want to make sure that you give to me exactly what I need, that as I step out, I'm not going to embarrass myself and especially them. You want me, God, to pray for that person who is spiritually or psychologically tortured? A little uncomfortable with that, but I'm willing to do it as long as you provide me, maybe with someone else who could go with me to help me out. There's a natural fear and nervousness in each of us, I think, to step out and do anything if we feel like we aren't prepared for it or equipped for it. Yet what we all know in the end is every heart surgeon has their first open heart surgery. Meaning, no more reading, no more training. Now we're talking about a real live open heart surgery with someone's life on the line, right? But none of us want to be it, right? How many have you done? This is my first. <laughs> nope. Every pilot has to lead the simulator, and they're now responsible for taking off and flying and landing this plane with those people behind you. 
every soldier prepares for the moment when this is not a drill anymore, this is real life. And every firefighter leaves the controlled mock training and they now have to enter that burning building to rescue that little kid on the second floor. And when they do that, they don't want to go into it with a squirt gun in hand. Now what does this have to do with the underdog? Well, there's usually a reason why you are considered the underdog. You aren't the underdog because you're the most equipped and most trained and most skilled. You aren't the underdog because you have the wealthiest sponsors or the most decorated coaches behind you. You are not the underdog because you have access to the most cutting edge performance technology. You are the underdog because while your opponent is in the state of the art facilities, you're out in the Siberian wilderness working by lifting rocks. But here's what you need to know. God uses underdogs who from a human point of view looks completely under-resourced. And he seems to do this on purpose over and over again. I don't know if you remember in the Gospels, Jesus has been with his disciples and he's about to send them off to be on their own, at least for a trial run. And he'll do this a couple of times in the Gospels, but the very first time in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, he will say, Jesus calls the twelve together and he gives them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases and he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, at this moment, I'm on board, right? You're getting authority from Jesus to cast out demons and to heal the sick, in which I'm like, right on. Until you get to verse 3, Jesus says, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt even. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now, again, I'm down with the power and authority to drive out demons and cure diseases. It's the verse 3 part that I have like, really? Take nothing with me for the journey? No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt to which, whoa, hold up, Jesus. The motto is be prepared. And taking off on a journey with no staff, bag, bread, money, or extra shirt seems to be just stupid. I don't mind going. Just let me have in my hand what I might need for a variety of different scenarios. In fact, I wonder for how many Christians today this would be the deal breaker. Like, they don't mind going on the journey, but when they find out that, you mean I can't take that habit with me? No, not for this one. But I'm dependent on that. Or I can't have this prized possession? Not right now. You. Or I can't carry this attitude with me or this way of talking? Not on this journey I'm sending you on. And I think this happens all the time. Like, we, oh, I love Jesus, and I'm down with the power from Jesus to do those sorts of things. But when Jesus asks me to lay something down for our journey, we kind of quickly panic and think, well, I can't live without that. What do you mean I can't behave like that anymore? Or what do you mean I can't have that prejudice or that preference? We like to have in our hands those things that make us secure. In fact, did anyone have kids when they grew up that had that little security item they needed? Like maybe it was a blanket or a teddy bear or some object they kind of had to hang on to. And maybe some of you adults are still doing the same thing. Because <laughs> like, so. the truth is, I'm not sure we really ever outgrow it. 
like our objects of security might change for us. It might go from, I need that blankie with me at all times, to I at least need to have this amount of money in my bank account to truly feel secure. And if it drops below that, you get that inner panic that takes place in it. Or for others, it might be, yeah, I'm okay in life, I think, as long as I have this particular quantity of alcohol in my house at all times to ensure whatever might come. Or maybe it's, for you, the security of having this many likes on your latest selfie that you posted online, and I get all that. In fact, by the way, um, we begin next week a, a, a series called Selfie, so uh, come next week and bring your phones with you. We'll need them next week as we start a new series. I want you to know, as you enter into the underdog life, you will often get sent out by Jesus, and your only security blanket will be your complete dependence on Him. You will set out, in short, empty-handed, and that can freak you out. In fact, I want to share with you one, a great underdog story of being under-resourced from the Scriptures. I'm going to be in Judges chapter 6 and chapter 7. In fact, we're going to read those two chapters together. And so it's a story of Gideon, and it begins in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites had to prepare shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, in the caves, and in the strongholds. In fact, when they came out and planted their crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and other eastern peoples would invade the country. And they camped on the land and they ruined the crops all the way from Gaza, and they didn't spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkey. And they came up with their livestock and their tents, and they were like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they finally cried out to the Lord for help. Now, in these first six verses, what we're getting here is a contrast between the Israelites and the Midianites. What you'll note about the Israelites are they are an oppressed people, so much so that they can't even live in their houses anymore. They're building dwelling places in caves and mountain clefts, and they're finding strongholds. And when they come out to plant the crops, they just get ruined. And so note what you're seeing here is the oppressive state of the Israelites versus the Midianites and the Amalekites and all those other eastern peoples. It says they're like a swarm of locusts, meaning we can't even see the skyline. Like, it's crazy. In fact, it says we can't even count how many men and camels belong to, to them. It continues in verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all of your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Don't worship the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you live, but you have not listened to me. Now, what they get here is a history lesson. Like, this is not the first time you've been oppressed, is it? No, you were oppressed before back in Egypt. You remember what happened? Yeah, I rescued you. I delivered you. It was my power, my mighty hand, and all I said was, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Don't worship other gods. And you didn't listen. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah, or Oprah, she's got a great show, that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, this is how bad it is. Like, what do you do in a wine press? You make wine. Things are so bad, they need to go thresh wheat in the wine press just to keep themselves alive. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, listen, he says, the Lord is with you, 
mighty warrior. Twitch, picture Gideon doing this. Pardon me, my lord? Which in the Hebrew is, huh? And then he wants to say, really, the Lord's with me? Because if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? You ever feel like that? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of the Midians. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? To which again Gideon says, huh? How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Manasseh is the tribe that he belongs to. There are 12 tribes of Israel, clan being his family. And even within my family, in my clan, I'm like the least. This is the underdog anthem. My clan is the weakest. I am the least. And the angel of the Lord saw something in Gideon that no one else could see about Gideon. Gideon couldn't even see it in himself. He will say, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So verse 16, the Lord says, I'll be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive, which you have to picture in your mind. Like he looks across the valley and sees, they're like a swarm of locusts. Like there's so many, you can't even count them, and none of them are going to be alive because of me. And Gideon replies, if I, now I have found favor in your eyes, you've got to give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. And I'm very sympathetic with Gideon on this, right? Like you want me to go take on all of them. You need to prove it's you talking to me, God, because maybe I just ate a burrito and it's not sitting right. I don't know, but I need to know it is you talking to me. And so he asks for a sign. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord says, I'll wait for you to return. So Gideon goes inside. He prepares a young goat. And from an ephah of flour, he makes bread without yeast. He puts the meat in a basket, and he pours the broth in a pot. And he brings them out, and he offers them to him under the oak. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread place them on this rock, and then just pour out the broth. That's what Gideon does. Now watch this. This is what happens here. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, which could have looked like some of your barbecues yesterday. I don't know, but they just... And the angel of the Lord then disappeared. And when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, and this is an important message, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is Peace. Even to this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abizarites. That same night, the Lord said to him, Now here's what I want you to do next. Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, which is interesting, isn't that so specific? Kind of like God's had his eye on that one. Ribeyes are great, that guy right there. <laughs> Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asher pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asher pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But, listen to this, because he was afraid of his family, which is interesting, isn't it? Mighty warrior, you're not going to die. Peace be with you. He just saw the angel of the Lord. He's scared to death of his mom. And, like, he's scared of his family members. So at nighttime, since he's afraid of the family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So in the morning, everyone woke up, and there was Baal's altar, demolished, with the Asher pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. And so they started asking each other, who did this? And they made a careful investigation. They found out, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. 
So the people of the town demanded of Joash, his dad, bring out your son. He must die because, he's, because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Now, Gideon's dad at this moment is trying to protect his son. Any good father is thinking, oh, all the town has showed up to kill you, kid. Like, what'd you do? So he's got this brilliant idea. He says this. He responds to the hostile crowd. Are you going to plead Baal's case or his cause? Are, are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he could defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him a nickname. <laughs> they give him a new name, Jerub Baal, which means let Baal contend with him. Verse 33, now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the Valley of Jezreel. Now, if we're watching this in a movie, the music behind us is building. It's getting intense. It's letting us know things are picking up because it's not just the Amalekites and the Midianites and the other eastern people. They've joined forces now, and they've just crossed over. Verse 34 of chapter 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizarites, which was his own family members, to follow him, <laughs> which is like, that's it. And then he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, which is the tribe he belongs to, calling them to arms and also into a few other tribes of Israel, Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali. So they too went up to meet them. And Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, and it's a test. It's another test for God. I will place a wolf fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day, and he squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. <laughs> then Gideon said to God, okay, okay, don't be angry with me, God, but let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time, let's do the opposite. Make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry, and all the ground was covered with dew. So early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, <laughs> his name stuck, the nickname stuck, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah, and the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. Now, remember what it looks like across the valley, right? A swarm of locusts, there's too many to count. And God says to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. They'll say things like, my own strength has saved me. So, what I would say is, huh? They've joined forces. They're like a swarm of locusts. There's too many to count. And I, and I have too many? That's like saying that's too much cheese. It's not possible. Right? <laughs> or we have too much money. That's not a possibility. But God is concerned and jealous for his own glory. And I think this is important. God does not like others taking the glory and credit for what he is doing. It is never a good idea to step in front of God and say, look at me, look at me. Anytime that you in your life can give credit where credit is due, that is to God, you should do so. Now, as you do, be sincere, be natural, be real. False humility is weird. It's okay to still take a compliment, but in the end, God is the one who likes to receive the glory. So he says in verse 3, now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Now, if we just stopped here for a moment, if I'm, if, if I'm Gideon, I don't want anyone to leave. And so I'm going to figure out, how do I say this and make this announcement that lets guys not leave? So I would get up and say, like, if you're chicken, 
Like, you can go on home. Like, if scaredy cats, you know, I start mocking them. I don't know how he makes the announcement, but he gets up and he says, listen, if you're scared, you can go home. And then this is where Gideon probably is holding his breath, like hoping maybe one or two, and really kind of even the ones that wouldn't be very good anyhow, like they go on home. What happens next is 22,000 men walk away. Now, could you imagine being Gideon at this moment? And what remains is 10,000. Poor Gideon, could you imagine watching 22,000 men walk away? Now, this is where most church leaders panic, and they back off of whatever plan they think God has given to them because we didn't expect that many people to leave. It's like two-thirds of the church just walked out. Could you imagine the anxiety and the panic? And not just with Gideon, even the guys who decide to stay. Like, you know that there's got to be fear rising up in them as they're, like, watching two out of every three guys take off, and they're thinking, Maybe we should go too. Like, I don't know. You're going to go. I don't know. I'm gonna, I'm, like, you, the anxiety, I'll tell you, that fear is contagious. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. <laughs> like, are you nuts, God? Are you kidding me? Like, didn't you just watch 22,000 guys walk away? So God says, here's what I want you to do. Let's go get a drink of water. Get the 10,000 guys that remain. Take them down for a drink of water. And when I say this one shall go with you, he'll go. And if I say this one shall not go, he will not go which I'm thinking at this moment, God has just lost his mind. And I'm still panicking if I'm Gideon, because if I look across the valley, and if God, you would look across the valley, you would see how many people are over there. So in verse 5, Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told him, here's what I want you to do. If they get on all fours and they lap from the kneel down to drink, like, let's see what happens here. Verse 6, 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I'm going to save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. Now, could you imagine making that announcement? These 300, you're going to stay. Everyone else, you can go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. 300. You went from about 32,000 to 300, which makes for a great movie title. But if I'm Gideon, come on. Verse 9. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm coming, uh, going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, which I'm sure he is, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. And afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sands on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. It was a round loaf of barley bread, and it came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. And when he heard it, his friend said, This could be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. And then he said, Watch me. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, what's in their hands? Do you remember what's in their hands? Trumpets, empty jars, and torches. 
which you've got to be kidding me, right? We're already down to 300. Like, in terms of this whole be prepared theme, like, what you were giving me in my hands is an empty jar, torch, and a trumpet? See, here's what I know, at least about military. Uh, superior firepower can sometimes overcome a deficit of numbers. And if you're looking around, you can clearly see we are at a deficit in regards to the numbers. This is why, you know, even in the Civil War, it's the Gatlin gun was an amazing tool and won all sorts of victories, even in, in spite of the deficits of numbers, because it's superior firepower. If you're going to send me out to face all of the Midianites, Amalekites, and Eastern peoples, I at least want the nicest tanks, bombers, and rocket launchers. At the very least, give me a sweet sword. I don't even have that. What's in your hand? Trumpets, empty jars, and a torch. Now, if I'm one of the 30, and you would have told me ahead of time that this is what you're going to place in my hand, you remember when all those 22,000 people walked out? I would have walked out too. You want to talk about underdog weaponry, Verse 19, Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. And they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And their army fled to Beth Shittah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Moholah, near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. And they also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb the Zeb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Now, here's what I want you to know from Judges 6 and 7. We all have a tendency to dismiss ourselves because we're lacking something. That what we are in possession of will not be sufficient. That what we're holding in our hand by way of resources is not going to be enough for us to be prepared for what lies ahead. And so we say things like, well, if I could just get a little bit more consistent in my prayer life and my Bible study and Bible reading, then I think I'll be ready to work with the student ministries. Or if I could just kind of get my act straightened out in this particular area of my life, and there's always something, doesn't it, that comes to our mind, that area of our life that we kind of are embarrassed by, maybe a place that's seemingly kind of, I still struggle with this. There's no way that God could be calling me because of that to lead a small group. Or I'd like to attend maybe a few more Bible classes just to kind of get a better handle on Scripture in my life before I actually start volunteering to work with the kids. Or what happens is other people come to our mind and we think, they're way more qualified than I am. Like They've been at this Christianity thing way longer than I have. They're more spiritual. They seem to be more gifted. I'm the weakest in my family, and even in my family, I'm the most insignificant and when the angel of the Lord shows up and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, we scoff because we don't recognize it in ourselves. We dismiss it and assume that angel must surely be mistaken. He or she has got to have the wrong person. It becomes a test of our faith to watch 22,000 people walk away, but you are determined to move forward because you know it's from God. And I know because being on the inside, you see how most church leaders, this is where you balk at this moment in retreat, hoping if you could do about face, it will stop the hemorrhaging. 
Or how many times did you think to yourself, you weren't the right person because someone else was just better qualified? The point of the story of Gideon, and even this underdog series as we've been talking about, and this is an important aspect of God's character, and I mean this with all due respect to God, but God seems to like to showboat sometimes. He, he seems to like to show off. He likes to somehow overwhelm people with his own power and his own strength because it just makes for better worship. He likes to surprise everyone with an upset victory just to show the proud who's who. How many men do you have? 32,000. No. Everyone will just credit the numbers of that. Scratch the 30,000. We're going to make it 300. I remind you, as we began in the very first week, you, according to the Apostle Paul, are a naught. Like when it comes to worldly standards, we're not the brightest. We're not the wealthiest. We're not the most powerful. We don't have all the numbers. No one would put their money on us. You are not in possession of the greatest arsenal. You look, quite frankly, ill-equipped, like what is in your hand will not be able to handle what's coming at you. To which what our message over and over again has been, you're perfect for the job. You are the underdog. God loves to side with the underdog. Because in the end, the underdog always gives God the credit. We are to be the underdog. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray. Right now, God, each one of us are walking through a particular situation that can at moments feel like we are totally overwhelmed by it. And it produces in us at times anxiety or fear or panic. Like we're just trying to make it through the next hour, let alone this day, let alone what might be uh, in this coming week. And it's in those moments that we need from your spirit encouragement and empowerment to have great faith to trust you and your promises that when you call us by a name that we don't recognize, when you identify in us something we don't see in ourselves, that we're able to hear your voice and be able to stand against whatever imposing force there is on the other side of the valley of our life and know that you have us covered. And what we recognize as we come to you is we've got very little to offer you. Like There's nothing in our hands that we present to you that you're going to be impressed by. And there's nothing in our hands that we think is going to be so impressive in regards to whatever task and mission and vision you've called us to. And so what we recognize in it is, I guess that you're calling us to be the perfect candidates as underdogs, to be the thing that you use as your instruments to bring about your own glory. And so I pray this week that you would give each one of us a very tangible moment of victory and in it that we'll be able to point back to you and say, it is all God, that you'll be lifted up and that your son will be honored. In his name we pray.